Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast. Find out how good you are. I know how good I am. Having three children with autism and being around them all the time, they make me better as well. If Wilkinson had missed that kick, I'd have been moving house. <laughs> but my favourite one that really made me was my love triangle with Triple H and Stephanie. And uh, how did you get this story? How did you know about this? Hello and welcome to the TWS Sports Podcast, the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. This podcast has been set up by Technolwood School and our aim is to teach our students new skills through podcasting. Each week we chat to famous sportsmen and women from around the world. We delve deep into their sporting careers, their highs and lows, and what makes them one of the best athletes in their sport. All of our students' hard work and dedication has paid off as we have recently won a Global Sports Podcast Award for the best equality in social sports podcast. That's enough for me. I'm going to hand you over to the stars of the show, which are our students who host the podcast, and I will let them introduce today's guest. Thank you. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a professional football player who has played for a number of teams, such as Celtic, Aston Villa and Bayern Munich. He is now a football pundit. Welcome to the podcast, Alan McAnally. <laughs> Thanks, Harvey. <laughs> Good lads. So we'd like to start our podcast off with some quick fire questions before we ask you about your career. Are you ready? I am ready. If you could go back to one year in your life, what year would that be and why? Wow. Um, well, there's a couple of moments that I I treasure, which was uh, putting on a Scotland strip for the first time. That was pretty good representing your country. is always uh, quite an achievement for a football player. Um, probably in game of Bayern Munich, which was the opening day of the season against Nuremberg, which is a kind of mini derby in Germany. It's kind of within that Bavarian structure in southern Germany. And there was a huge game. There were 75,000, 80,000 people there. And we won 3-2 and I managed to get two goals. And that kind of settled my nerves a bit because it was uh, there was times when I went there, I thought, 
oh boy, all these guys are really good. I better get my finger out and make sure <laughs> I'm really good. Who is the most famous person in your phone book? Ooh. Everybody knows the king, Kenny Douglas. If you could tread lives with anyone for a day, who would it be and why? Days. Change for a day. Change for a day. Who would I change for a day? Wouldn't it be great to be the Prime Minister? What an oh, goes yeah. on down there. <laughs> and you can have a drink in the garden and have a party and it's okay. <laughs> right, well, uh, I'll it... say the Prime... Yeah, well, uh, no, that, that's too controversial. Um, <laughs> what can we say? We'll go... Yeah, let's change with Pet Guardiola. We actually that, we, that would be fantastic. We interviewed your your colleague Matt Letizia a few weeks ago, and um, he said the Prime Minister as well. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's just because it's probably um, on everybody's uh, agenda at the moment, isn't it? But I'll, I'll I'll change that then, and I'll go certainly Pet Guardiola because he seems to be uh, he seems to just know just about everything that needs to be done in football. Very true. Okay. Growing up as a child, did you always want to be a footballer and how did you get into football? Yeah, Harvey, I always wanted to be a football player. My father was a football player, a very famous professional football player in Scotland. He played with Kilmarnock and he played with Motherwell and he played with Hamilton and he played with Kilmarnock in the year 1964-65 when they won the league title. You know, they beat Rangers, they beat Celtic, they beat Hearts and they won the title. And I suppose... Um, when I was growing up, I think everybody just expected me to be a football player because of my father. Um, so I went to Air United, which was my very first club where I was born. I was born in Air in Scotland in the West Coast. Um, and I joined the boys club there. And then my father told me to get a job because when I was 16, there was a lot of clubs in England wanted me uh, as well as Scotland. And he said, no, get a job. And if you're good enough, you'll be a football player. So I signed from a local club, Air United. And uh, it was probably the best advice I've ever had. You started your career at Air United in 1980. What are your memories of your time there? Oh, wow. Um, Nothing mattered. Everything was just brilliant. Training was just fantastic. Being a football player was amazing. Living in your hometown, everybody knowing who you are. It was just a special time. And I've had some great friends. Um, I mean, I played with some guys like you know, Stevie Nicholl, played for Scotland and played for Liverpool. I played with Robert Connor, who was in that team. We played with Aberdeen, Sir Alex Ferguson signed them, played for Scotland. So we, we had a terrific team, terrific young players. And um, I learned a lot. I, I was very lucky at the football club. There were senior players who looked after the younger players and told them exactly what was right and what was wrong. Not so much now, I don't think. I think young children, or young, I shouldn't say children, young players get too much too soon, and you know there's no incentive for them. I think they get too much money too quickly too soon. I mean, one quick story I can remember. I could only ever, when I was 16 years old, even though I'd signed a professional contract, I had to change in the away dressing room for training, and I wasn't allowed to go into the home dressing room until all the senior players had left, because I then had to go in with the lads and clean the home dressing room. I bet there's not many young players do that nowadays. I can't see um, Phil Foden doing that, no. <laughs> well, yeah, there's a few. I mean, to be fair, I think Phil's at a position now where, you know, he's past that, that stage of promise and he's now fulfilling. I'm talking about, you know, players who are 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, and who are, are on ridiculous money given by to them by the football clubs 
who are doing it the wrong way around. Incentivize. Give them money. I don't get that. I think that's wrong in football. You then moved to Celtic in 1984. How did you feel to move to Celtic? Well, it was it was a, it was a big move. I was either going to go to England or I was going to stay in Scotland. Um, and my father again played a big part in this. My, my my father did not like Celtic and did not like Rangers. He didn't like the sectarianism. He wasn't a religious man at all. Um, but um, it, it was basically first come first serve. He knew both David Hay, who was the manager of Celtic, and John Gregg, who was the manager of Rangers. And I signed for Celtic on the Tuesday. And John Gregg arrived at my mum and dad's house on the Friday night to sign me for Rangers. <laughs> and he said, I'm sorry, John, you're too late. He signed for Celtic. Um, and I still think it was the best thing he ever did. It was a great but David Hay was a great manager, great manager. And some great players I got to play with at the Celtic, uh, at Celtic Football Club. And we won the league and we won the cup. And it was, um, yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a good idea for me to go to Celtic when I was 20, 21 um, and again, it, it gave me a good grounding to to know just exactly what it's like to play with a really, really big football club who expect to win and don't expect anything else. I just want to ask Alan about the Glasgow derby. I imagine back in the eighties, it was it was probably even more feisty than it is now. What was it like as a player to play in that in that derby? Brilliant, scary, exhilarating. I've never looked forward to a game as much how much it meant for so many people being as frightened as I was. And you've got to absorb all of them in and, and use it to your, try and use it to your advantage. It's the only game I suppose I've ever turned up for, apart from the World Cup, I suppose, but the only game I ever turned up, the game was three o'clock in the afternoon and Celtic were playing Rangers. Didn't matter if it was at Parkhead, didn't matter if it was at Ibrooks. We had to get there a minimum two hours before the game. The bus ain't getting along the road. That's what it was like. Was it... Was it even, I imagine, even more scary at Ibrox? <clears throat> was the atmosphere, was it enjoyed? Um, yeah, no, I enjoy. I enjoyed it. That didn't bother. People screaming at you and, 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 and loving you or hating you, that just didn't not bother me one little bit. Um, that was, you know, the, the louder they shout at you, the better maybe you think you're doing. But um, the animosity towards me as an away player didn't bother me ever in my whole career. Didn't bother me. Still doesn't bother me now. You got the nickname Rambo whilst in Canada. Is that right? We actually Celtic had we won the the Scottish Cup and we went to uh, Vancouver on a ten day end of season break and uh, we were actually play. We we're going to play one game there. We played a, a, a not charity match but a kind of presentation match against the Vancouver Whitecaps, who were a team over there, still are a team actually in Canada. And Rambo, the film, had only just come out. It hadn't even been in our country yet. It had been in the States and North America first. So I went to watch it with Roy Aitken, who was our captain of the football club. And obviously we know the Rambo with the thing around his head, he gets the gun and he's cutting himself and he's doing all the macho things. And I had... Um, uh, the following, just after pre-season, we went to Ireland and I scored a couple of goals against a couple of Irish teams and I kind of got it and went past people as if they weren't there, stuck it in the back of the net. And it was actually a journalist who said, and McAnally in a Rambo-style fashion brushed past two players and kicked it into the net. So I thought, well, that was, that was really nice. And we had the first game of the season at Parkhead 
And I ran out to warm up and the whole stadium started shouting Rambo, singing Rambo. And from that day on, Alan McAnally was never used at Celtic. It was only, how you doing, big man? How's big Rambo? And I still get it to this day in Glasgow. That's a, that's a pretty good nickname. There's a lot of worse, nickna- worse nicknames you can have. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, uh, Sylvester did okay and I quite like it. <laughs> um, I just want to take you back to Canada and I heard an uh, interesting story. I want to take you back to... Is it the third hole at Wolf Creek Golf Club on the tee? Oh, man, yeah. No, that's, well, my, my other half is Canadian and I live partly in Canada now. And uh, how did you get this story? How did you know about this? We're, we're well-researched. Well, uh, so you have to remember in Canada, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of miles of forest. And in those forests, there are cougars, there are wildcats, and there are bears. Brown bears, black bears, and grizzly bears. And you've got to be genuinely careful, especially in the summertime. And then there's trails, etc., and you can take bear spray. And you, you just have to be careful because, after all, they live there. It's their home. And there's people there as well. But Wolf Creek Golf Club is one of the best golf clubs I have ever played in, in terms of spectacular scenery. But let's just say you're hitting your, the ball sometimes thinking, well, if it goes in those trees, I think I'll probably leave it. And we get to the third tee, and I'm in a buggy, and, I, and I, asked, I actually asked the professional, can I play off the back tee so it makes it a bit longer? Um, and he said, yeah, no problem. He says, don't play off the metal tees, just play off the blue, the blue tees. I said, well, that, thanks very much. So I get up there, and there's a ranger up there in a, in a buggy. And I went, hey, how you doing? You know, and he went, yeah, man, no problem, et cetera, et cetera. And I went, oh, that's good. You can see me hitting the fairway here. And we looked down the fairway, and it was beautiful. There was a river, and there was these... 200 foot trees and you know the, the the fairway was cut beautifully and he said I ain't watching you man and I was like oh okay then no problem and he went I'm watching him and I turned around and it was a black bear and it was only about 200 yards away but he was kind of down a hill and my heart started to I was like no I've seen a bear before it's the most exhilarating incredible thing I have ever seen in my life and I said, well, what, what are you going to do? He said, well, I've got a gun, I've got a flare. He said, he won't come near us. He said, he's been trying to pull that bush out of the ground for the last 20 minutes. And I was just thinking, astoundingly unbelievable. And I hope I never see it. I, um, I hope you managed to hit the fairway. Uh, yeah, I thought, well, put it this way, it's the quickest I've ever taken a golf shot to get back in the buggy to go back down the hill. <laughs> Here at the Amethyst Academies Trust, we are incredibly ambitious for our schools and our pupils, and we believe that there is no ceiling on what can be achieved by anyone. Working in partnership with Penhall School and Technal Wood School, we are proposing to refurbish the beautiful Penhall Mansion, a grade two star listed building in Wolverhampton, into an exciting and professional specialist vocational college for young people aged 14 to 19 with special educational needs and disabilities. Changing the face of employability for young people with SEND, the college will offer specialist career pathways and in-house vocational learning experiences for students that will be open to the public. Students will be able to develop their skills, knowledge and flourish in confidence across a wide range of audiences. We need to raise £400,000 to refurbish the mansion and provide accessible and stimulated learning and working spaces for students and the community. We are relying on public donations, business relationships, 
and support, no matter how big or small, to make this college a reality for our students. Donate today. Go to www.sedgwick.aatrust.co.uk Sedgwick College. Discover bright futures. Left Celtic in 1987 for a quarter of a million pound to join Aston Villa. Why did you decide to move? Because Aston, uh, because Celtic wouldn't give me a new contract. Well, that's a lie. They offered me a new contract, but I thought it was pretty derisory towards me, considering what I'd done. The three strikers that we played, we played a kind of 4-3-3 under David Hay. Morris Johnson had gone to Nantes in France. Brian McLeod had gone to Manchester United. And that just left me as the, as the final striker left. They offered me a pretty poor contract, a two-year contract. I didn't think I, I, I deserved that. And I knew that Graham Taylor at Aston Villa, had, when Graham Taylor had tried to buy me when he was with Elton John at Watford, and I didn't want to leave Celtic then. And I didn't still particularly want to leave Celtic. But they really gave me no choice and put me into a, not a corner, but they put me into a situation where they said, well, this is what we're offering. If you want it, take it. Otherwise, bye-bye. You mentioned Graham Taylor there, and I think, was it after Villa you went on to manage England? What was he like as a manager, and what yeah. was he like personally to you? Expected a lot of his players. Um, training was really hard and strict, which I didn't bother, to be fair. I quite liked that. That was okay with me. But he was good. He, he, he listened, I got a hard time. He always wanted the England manager job. He always wanted the England manager job. And it worked for a while, and then... Um, the power of the press and some of the results that weighs heavy on you. But he was a great manager for me. You got promoted back in the first division in your first season with Aston Villa and then you, third season at the club, you finished second in the top division. That is an amazing achievement. How did the club do that? One of the stumbling blocks originally for me to even think about leaving Glasgow Celtic because we were playing in Europe every year. None of the English teams were playing in Europe, certainly not Aston Villa, who were going through a tough time. And that's the reason why Graham Taylor was actually offered the job in the first place. It was going down to a division below the top division, but we had a wonderful football club, apart from myself, with the likes of Gordon Cowens and Gary Thompson and David Platt and Nigel Spink and Alan Evans and Mark Walters and Andy Gray. Stuart. I mean, we had a great team and we came straight up, straight up, no problem. Uh, and as you can imagine, it's a difficult thing to do. It's not easy, especially when everybody, you know, you've got a, a target on your on your back so much when you're an Aston Villa player trying to get into the top division again. But once we've done that and we did it quite comfortably, um, you know, it's it's just down to, you know, your, your professionalism as a team and as as, as individual players, and you got to do as, as best as you can. So yeah, it was a, a really good time, and thankfully Aston Villa have stayed in the top division every every time every year since then. You made your Scotland debut in 1989 against Cyprus, replacing David Speedy. What was it like to make your debut? Amazing. Amazing. I'll, I'll, I'll never forget one particular game, which that was, that was for the World Cup. That was a qualification for the World Cup 1990. And well, you probably won't know this, but the game actually went to, I think it was seven added minutes to the end of which we won the game with a headed goal from Richard Goff. And the I remember the ground was so bounced. Cyprus is obviously very hot, and the pitch was so bouncy. We were well playing on the road, to be honest. You know, my cap there was just amazing. And then 
we played Chile in, in a particular cup competition and I scored at Hamden, uh, of which we won the game 2-0. And it's two games I'll never forget. It was just amazing. Absolutely fantastic. And the biggest compliment, sorry, not to me, but I was thinking about my grandfather and my father uh, and how proud you know they would be. My dad didn't let my mum go to the game because he knew that she couldn't cope with it in case somebody was shouting anything bad at me. <laughs> so she was banished and dad came. So it was pretty good. You had some great players in that Scottish team. Graham Souness, Kane Dalglish, Brian McClear and others. Does it frustrate you that you didn't qualify for the World Cup and do you think maybe you should have? Yeah, we should have. We Well, that particular year, 1990, when we qualified, there was obviously myself, Morris Johnston, Brian McClear... Um, Jim Bett, Roy Aitken, Alec McLeish, Willie Miller. I mean, for goodness sake, what a football team we had, for God's sakes. I mean, I even played with David Cooper, who was just the most unbelievable Rangers football, Rangers of Scotland football player I've ever played with. And and we played Costa Rica, and I still do it to this day. I mean, we absolutely, I mean, you could, of course, there's another way to say that, you know, you, you forget how good Costa Rica were because that's the qualified from the uh, South American group. So, they weren't that bad, but we still had chances to beat them and we should have beaten them. We got beat 1-0, we beat Sweden 2-1, and in our last game we got beat by Brazil 1-0, which was very unlucky. They scored in the last 10 minutes. So we played the three games and unfortunately we didn't qualify for the next, the next, you know, last 32, last 16, whatever it was. So that's a really frustrating thing. It's the only frustrating thing that's ever happened in my career that I wish I could change. The rest of the thing, I mean, there's a couple of games you think, ah, I wish I could do go there again, like, you know, two semi-finals in the Champions League with Bayern, etc., etc. But the Scotland thing's still the only one I'm like. Give me just one game from Celtic, from Villa, from Bayern, whatever. But it was certainly still one of the best, the best feelings ever to represent my country in the World Cup. And then a few years later, you joined Bayern Munich, as you said. Why did a did you decide to leave Villa, and b why did you decide to move to Germany rather than maybe another English club? Well, I had a, I had a, a conversation with Graham Taylor uh, probably about the February when the likes of there was a few English clubs interested. I don't know what Arsenal, etc., and stuff. And he said, "Look, you're not going to another English club." Well, you, well, I'm the manager of Aston Villa, and I said, "Fine, no problem." And he actually said, "As I thought earlier, I said I'll let you go abroad, but you're not going to another English club." So we never really thought about it. I didn't really want to. I wasn't in the. I wasn't playing to try and get a move to somewhere else. I was playing with Aston Villa to try and win a cup and win something, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I loved living in the in the Midlands. It was great, a nice place. Bodymore Hoof, the training ground was was you know really really good. Um, but we, I continued to do really well. Played one game and then somebody said, an agent had said that Bayern Munich are coming to watch you. And I knew they'd watch me playing for Scotland, but still never really thought an awful lot of it. Um, and it wasn't until they, they showed real interest that Graham Taylor and I spoke about it specifically. And he said, look, he said, I don't want you to go. He said, but it's an opportunity for you that might never raise its head again. Bayern Munich's not just a football club. Bayern Munich is a footballing international world tradition of World Cup winners and, and unbelievable football players. And he said, I don't want you to go. And I said, well, let's play it out. And I said, if they continue to show interest in, I'll speak to them. So um, that was it. And basically, after I'd speak, spoken to the likes of 
Uli Hoeneß and Franz Beckenbauer, etc., etc. All of a sudden, you think, do you have a pen? Has anyone got a pen? Can I sign this contract right? Can I sign the contract now before I go back and tell Graham Taylor that I'm even going to sign it? So as much as it was difficult to leave Aston Villa, and of course, I said to, to Graham, I said, can you speak to Mr Ellis? Doug Ellis was the chairman. I said, would I get an improved contract if I sign an extended contract? And he said, look, they won't, he won't go to what Bayern Munich were offering me, which was obviously very good money. And the next thing I know, I'm in Germany, in a different country, with one of the biggest clubs in the world, uh, learning a new language to make sure I can, I can try and make it over there. You had a very successful first season in Germany. You were winning the league title. Did you find it easy to adapt to a new team? <clears throat> the, the, big, the, 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 big, the hardest thing, Harvey, was realising how... I'm, I'm quite a confident person. I'm pretty confident in my own ability. When I went to Celtic, I was pretty good. When I went to Villa, I was pretty good. But the first four or five training sessions at Bayern Munich, I thought, uh-oh, these guys are not only 20 feet tall, three yards quicker than me and better football players than me, I'm going to have to really work hard and make sure I can A, be accepted by the team and make sure I do as much as I can. And it made me a better football player. It made me a much better football player. I mean, I played with seven players that won the World Cup in 1990. All came back to Bayern, all World Cup winners. Augenthaler, I mean, ridiculous, super clever. I mean, just brilliant. I mean, he was a sweeper or a centre-half. You could have played him in the midfield. It wouldn't have looked out of, out of space. Olaf Torn. You know, Stefan Reuter, Jürgen Kohler, Hans Flugler. I mean, just some unbelievable football players. And it was it was a terrific, terrific time. I mean, we played 34 games that year to win the league. Um, one, I was suspended. And he asked me if I wanted to play in the last game against Dortmund. And I said, well, and he said, to be fair, I want to play some of the young lads. Seem we've already won the title. And I said, OK. So I played all the games, 32, uh, and missed the last one. And then we won the title, and to this day, it's still something that's very dear to me. It's a huge football club, Bayern Munich. The football player, because losing in training is not an option, never mind on a Saturday afternoon with Bayern. And how did you find, away from the football, how did you find the change of culture, the language, the food, the, the way of life? Mm, I liked it. I don't know whether it's because I'm Scottish, but I, I, I saw a resemblance in, to the Bavarians and Germans to Scottish people. You know, even the the guttural language that they have of the her, which is like, you know, we say loch and, and, and droch and all that kind of stuff. You know, they say versich and, and sure and et cetera. So learning the language is obviously tough. But in terms of my pronunciation, I found it relatively easy. And now I don't think about it. I suppose the biggest compliment, or, or rather, because it was hard for me in the beginning. I had, a, I had a tutor come to the house every Thursday evening for six months. But when I go back to Germany, none of the lads speak English to me anymore. None of them. None of them really speak an awful English in Bavarian anyway. If they speak, in fact, they, they speak more English to me now so they can help their English because they know that I can speak German. So that's, that's quite a good thing. And obviously, it's a, it's a wonderful thing personally, having the opportunity to go and live in a place like Munich, which is hugely international and multicultural. And I, I absolutely loved it. The, the hardest thing was driving in the wrong side of the road for a while. <laughs> had to get that bit right. Um, but it was uh, once everything fell into place, I um, had, I mean, I'm really good to ask me this question, but I mean, my first year was unbelievable. 
Half of the second year was really good, and I got a, such a bad knee injury that I went to training, did the training, and never played football ever again. And I was at the biggest club in the world. That was hard to take. And even now, I look back thinking, I don't actually know how I coped with it, to be honest. But uh, yeah, those things happen to football players, I'm afraid. So after the injury you just mentioned, am I right in saying you moved to Kilmarnock to finish your career? Well, I, yeah, the, the problem was I'd moved back to Scotland, actually. Um, and Because uh, I had a house in Scotland, I moved back to where my mum and dad were, onto the coast. I liked, I liked air, and I still had friends there, obviously. And Tommy Burns, who's no longer with us, who I played with at Celtic, was just one of the best guys in football I've ever known in my life, Tommy Burns. He was... He crossed borders, he crossed Syrianism and religion. He, he was just an amazing guy. And he was the manager at Kamarnock. And he said, come on up and coach and you can still like train and stuff. This, this was very early fledgling time just after my injury. So, of course, I'm really still playing. And remember, it was Kamarnock. So I was obviously kind of better than the average bear still. But I really wanted to help him coach him. But he, Tommy convinced me, he said, look, sign a contract. You know, we, wanted, don't, we don't want to get relegated. We want a good cup run and blah, blah, blah. And I went, yeah, okay, fine. And it was kind of down to Tommy that I, I actually, because I didn't want to sign for Kamarnock because my dad had already got the McInally name there and there was no need for me to sign for Kamarnock. But Tommy convinced me to sign with him. I didn't score any goals, played a few games. But the atmosphere with all the players and the kind of the, the good feel within the camp was as best as I've ever had in football. Different reasonings. You know, helping the young players, doing some coaching, as well as, you know, giving them the best grounding they can have. And we didn't get relegated. And we got to the semi-final of the Cup against Rangers, where we were, we actually, to be honest, we were very unlucky not getting to the Cup. So that's how the Kilmarnock thing came around, not ever thinking I was ever going to play again. And I had to be released, actually, because I'd, I'd, I'd gone on an invalidity thing from the European side of, of Bayern and Munich and, and all that kind of stuff but it was uh, it was still one of the best times in football it really was I'm so glad I did it but it was all down to Tommy We received lots of messages on social media and our email from our listeners about autism so we decided that each week on the podcast we want to answer some of your questions so it is time for Autism Question of the Week So this week's question is all about emotions so Harvey how does autism affect your emotions? Well, Adam, I think my emotions can be amplified by autism sometimes. And when I feel a little bit stressed, um, it makes me to be more stressed than I actually am because the autism is just amplifying that emotion and making it so much more stronger. So it can be so much more harder in stressful situations. And I think that's just the main cause of emotions in autism. During your career, what are some of the best pranks you have seen and which players were the real jokers? Oh boy, well, I go right back to Air United for that one and Stevie Nichol was um, a bit of a prankster. Uh, Celtic, there was a lot. It's funny, I'm trying to think of one specific one. I remember Graham Taylor getting me, do you remember how everybody had to wear the red noses, you know, for the kind of red nose day? Yeah, yeah. Um, and he, and he, made us, uh, he made us train them but they were they were they were cutting the inside of my big nose, and I went, I can't train with this gaffer. And we actually were playing a game in the Saturday at home, so we trained the Friday morning. We stayed in the hotel on the Friday evening, 
And they say, well, when you're in a group all together, you must wear your nose all the time or it costs you 10 pounds and then we need to put it in and we give it to the charity. So I was like, right, okay, fair enough, all right. So, so, was a, so I used to room with Gary Thompson, just a fabulous big guy. And there was a chap at the door, knock at the door, and I said, I'll get it. Opened it, it was great tail, and he went, got you! You haven't got your nose on. <laughs> I was like, oh. And I had to get my tenor there and then. So that was a bit of a prank from, from one of the managers. But uh, let's just say there was lots for the players, but maybe not, I can say on a point. Um, so since retiring now, and you've became a football pundit, and with a number of companies, probably most notably Sky Sports, why did you decide to move into maybe punditry and, and not become a coach or manager? I don't know because I did all my coaching badges. I have everything. Every coaching <laughs> badge that is available apart from I did do the goalkeeping one to be fair. Yeah, I went with two Inverclyde in Scotland where with Craig Brown and Andy Roxburgh, etc, etc. I've, I've overseen I mean, goodness knows how many people for, um, for the coaching badges and I was going down that line but nobody was taking a chance, and I don't know whether I was a bit of a, not a frightening character, but maybe I just, they thought I would maybe demand too much, or they thought I wanted a job at the top level right away. Uh, and, and I've already mentioned Kamana because I absolutely adored coaching some of the, the, the under-18s and stuff at Kamana. It was really great. And then Soccer Saturday was hugely in its infancy, and it was George Best, Frank McClintock, Rodney Marsh, and then there was three or four different guys, which was Phil Thompson, Clive Allen, or me. That was the three, the three add-ons. And I was living in Scotland at the time, so I was coming down to London a lot. And it just started to, so the, the programme itself, which was huge. I mean, it was such a, such a, a hugely watched programme. And it was right up until maybe two or three years ago. And it got bigger in Sky and said, look, we, we, we'd like you to do the television. And at the time, nobody was offering me a, an assistant role and any players that I knew were obviously had their other friends or something as coaches. So I, I went down the TV world line, n- never thinking that was the, the career path I was going to take. But I suppose the good thing from my point of view, in terms of credibility, talking about football and the level of football you play at, I, I suppose I, I pass and I, I tick all the boxes in that one, but... It became such a, a brilliant programme to work on. And it was like being in a, a dressing room all over again, you know, without the swear words. And it was, uh, it was hugely enjoyable soccer Saturday. Um, and I, I, was, I was lucky to, to kind of fall into that path, to be honest. You all seem to have great chemistry on Soccer Saturday, especially when you were working with original team of Jeff Stanley, Paul Mason, Charlie, Nicholas, Phil Thompson and Matt Lee, TCA. What was it like working with them? Brilliant. It was so good. We used to fall out. We used to argue. Sometimes we used to agree, just not very often to be fair, <laughs> which I think was, the, was the, the, the thing of the whole programme. And I've got to say that working with Jeff Stelling. I hear, I hear some people now, male and female, presenters of the year. I mean, really? There is only one presenter of the year every year. It's just the problem is that you can't just keep giving it to Jeff every single year. But he is the best sports football presenter on the television for the last 25 years. He is phenomenal at his job. And trying to keep all of us in check and make sure we don't go too over the top is, uh, is, is an art in itself. So, yeah, working in the show was great. 
and all the lads got on really well. You know, there was a good chemistry. Things have changed a little bit now as, as things evolve and, and go on, you know, but uh, I don't know whether Soccer Saturday will ever be the same. It was amazing. So, yeah, I completely agree with you with, with Jeff. I don't understand how he can talk to the four, five, six of you in the studio, have a producer in his ear, the number of TV cameras he's, he's reading from, and mm. how does he do it? No, I wouldn't. I said I'd like to be in Pep's head for for a day. I don't even know if I'd any time want to be in Jeff's head when he's taking in that kind of information. I mean, sometimes I wear an earpiece, and one of the things about Jeff is his his, his ability to consume that information, but keep it for a bit, as well as put stuff out that he needs to do immediately. Because on Soccer Saturday, sometimes he'll somebody will be saying to us, "You need to shut up now," because there's a goal at Everton, and there's a goal at Crystal Palace, and there's a goal at Altrin. <laughs> And things happen really quickly. And that's the biggest thing that people know, you know, they, they, they maybe talk too long because we need it to be like, you know, it's happening here, it's happening there. But I can remember Jeff told something about a player and I was like, all right, yeah, okay. But he, did, and then, but he didn't say it for like three or four minutes and then he came out with it and I thought, he was told, he was told that ages ago. I mean, how does, he, how does he come up with that one? So yeah, it's just a, it's just a knack of being able to do it and uh, they'll be lucky to find someone better than him. But yeah, He's, uh, he's pretty good, isn't he? Pretty good. The Henshaw's Insurance Group is one of the top 100 independent insurance brokers in the country and is here to bring you peace of mind. We've been in business for over 50 years and have offices in Newport, Shrewsbury and Stafford. Our 45 plus strong team deals with both business and personal insurance and we offer a free, no obligation consultations and quotations so give us a call today how did you feel when your friends left sky sports in 2020 ah well like i said everything moves on a little bit they were the guys i'm kind of out and about on the on the on the, uh, on the road a lot at the games rather than being in the studio as much and yeah it's a sad it was sad um but like i say things move on i don't know whether soccer Saturday had to move on as drastically as that but it's a, a new evolving world we live in and we're talking about, you know, an ethnicity, a, a, a diversion, an inclusion of lots of different spheres in the sporting world. And if, if that's what direction we're going in, then we, we all have to we all have to just go along with it. It's as simple as that. Not go along with it, that's unfair. But everybody should have the opportunity to to have a different chance to to go on a different path that they never thought they would maybe go on. And if they're good enough to do it, then they'll stay on television. If they're not good enough to do it, then they'll do something else. There are a lot of issues with Man United at the moment. Can you put your finger on what is wrong with the club? Um, I think, I mean, Manchester United, first and foremost, are a huge football club. And they're still a good team, by the way. It's just difficult because City are brilliant, Liverpool are strong, Chelsea are strong, and United are just not there at the moment. I do think they've had players and have players at the club who for whatever reason, think that they are not better than they are, but carry a bit of arrogance that uh, is not translating onto the pitch. If you're winning football matches, you can do what you want as a football You can't do what you want as a football player, but you, you get a little bit more rope as a football player if you're winning. If you're not winning, and you're at a club like Manchester United, then things will be hyped and sometimes over-exaggerated but I do think at the moment in time, there are players who, A, I think we're very lucky to have spent the length of time at Manchester United as they have. And the change of um, direction at the top 
has not gone the way that United obviously thought they might. So, and obviously the change of manager. I mean, when Ole Gunnar Solskjaer got the job, I'd said, I think it's a good idea because they are bringing a bit of Manchester United back. And he was brought in to do two things. He was brought in to bring a little bit of harmony back in the club and stabilise things. Two main things. The selling and buying of football players, I don't think he had an awful lot to do with. That that's a problem for me when the manager doesn't have that kind of responsibility or clout to carry within the football club. Now, he stayed too long, but Man United unfortunately didn't do the right thing by by getting rid of them when they lost the Europa League to Villarreal. That was the time to change the manager. And since then, Man United still haven't got it right. And I think that then comes over into all the players that are still at the football club and the new ones and the, and, and the, and the old ones that are leaving. But make no, no mistake, Man United will be back, but it might take them a couple of years to get to where the likes of City and Liverpool are. Put you on the spot a little bit, Alan. Who do you think will be manager of Man United next season? Wow. Well, I, I came out and said that I didn't think they'd done the right thing already because they should have got Antonio Conte before Spurs. But I think there's people at Manchester United were scared of, of Conte because of what his demands would be and what his desires would be in the, in the transfer market. I've been told that the, the guy, um, uh, Ten Hag, at Ajax, is one of the big favourites because, of course, he might be coming then with their ex-goalkeeper, uh, Edwin van der Sar, who is one of the technical directors or something. I think he might be at Ajax. So that's a possibility. There'll be, a, <clears throat> I mean, can you imagine the amount of people that apply for a job like Manchester United? My goodness. I just think they missed the boat. I think they missed the boat. I think Conte should have been the manager of Manchester United. And then whatever any Man United fan thinks or any outside of Manchester United that's never been to a game that thinks it's a bit of a holiday camp and there's too many players do their own thing, I think Conte would have made sure that didn't happen. It's still happening, I'm afraid. And I don't understand why they gave it to Ralph Ranić, And I don't understand why they've said he'll go upstairs as an overseer for the next two years. That's, that's I don't get that either. Best pl- player in the Premier League at the moment? Mo Salah. Best manager in the Premier League at the moment? Pep Guardiola. Who will finish bottom? Burnley. Will Man United finish in the top four? Yes. Who will win the Champion League? I'm going to go to I'm going to go Man City or Paris Saint-Germain What's your favourite stadium in the Premier League to visit? Old Trafford If if you could play alongside a striker in the Premier League who would it be and why? Ooh I'd like to play with Romelu Lukaku because as much as, as strong and as quick as I was I think he could help me out a bit there and last one which player who doesn't currently play in the Premier League would you like to see in the Premier League next season I would like to see wow what a good question that is Vinicius Junior who is the young player who plays on the left hand side of attacking for Real Madrid Um, and there's also another young player at AC Milan and I apologise and I forgot his name Plays number 10. I'd like to see him as well. Can't believe I've had a mental block here. Let's just go Vinicius Junior. And thank you so much, Alan, for taking the time to talk to us today. 
We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us as a school to be able to have an opportunity to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Harvey. It was an absolute pleasure. Well, Harvey, do you want to show Alan what you've been practising? Okay. <laughs> he's been, Go on, we, then. <laughs> but when we're searching you, we realise, oh, Harvey realised he was Scottish, so he's been practising his accent for you. <laughs> Not much. Go well, on, then. Let me hear it. No, I am blue. What kind of shop do I am blue? And also, Fredo's used to be 10p, but now they're 25p. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> right, you ready for this one? It's a bra brecht moonlicht nicht the nicht. Try that one with the lads. Oh, Lord. <laughs> oh, fab. Alan, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We, we really, really do appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you so much. No problem. Enjoy your rest of your day, guys. See yes. you later. And you, thank mate. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye, bye. So, Harvey, another amazing podcast. Alan's just gone. How do you feel I went? I thought that went really well that time. I had a bit more confidence. Yeah, definitely. Your confidence is growing. I think this is your third one now each week. Yeah. Um, is there a certain story that Alan shared with us that stood out most for you? I think maybe when he says that most, most things come from motivation and really helped him in his career and everything. And that just really helped me understand everything that was being said. Yeah, definitely. And what about the good story about um, the the grizzly bear on the golf course? Oh, that sounded crazy <laughs> to me. I didn't think that would ever happen in any right mind of person. No, I wouldn't like to see a bear on the golf course either. <laughs> um, but amazing work, Harvey. Congratulations on another fantastic podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone, for listening to the TWS Sports Podcast. And we will see you next week. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the TWS Sports Podcast. Please follow us on social media by searching TWS Sports Podcast. We are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok and YouTube. Make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch some of our episodes in full. If you are listening to this on your iPhone, can you please go and give us a rating and review it? It really helps to grow our show. Thank you and see you next week. The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism, and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.